Welcome to Sermons of Grace with Pastor David Murphy of the Grace Baptist Church in Gambles Terrace, Antigua. Previously in our study of the Book of Romans, Chapter 12, Pastor Murphy showed us that a Christian is instructed to respond positively towards persecution. Today, we'll see two biblical examples of Christians who did this and the rationale for how a Christian can bless the persecutor. If I could turn with me, please, to the book of Romans, chapter 12. In Romans, chapter 12, I would like to read from verse number 9 to the end of this chapter, and then we're going to pick up our text uh, in verse number 14. Romans, chapter 12, beginning from verse number 9. Let love be without dissimulation. Abhor that which is evil. Cleave to that which is good. Be kindly affection one to another with brotherly love, in honor preferring one another. Not slothful in business, fervent in spirit serving the Lord. <clears throat> Rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing instant in prayer. Distributing to the necessity of the saints, given the hospitality. Bless them which persecute you, bless and curse not. Rejoice with them that do rejoice, and weep with them that weep. Be of the same mind one towards another. Mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Be not wise in your own conceits. Recompense to no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible, or sometimes it's not always possible, but if it be possible, as much as life in you, live peaceably with all men. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, your brother give place unto wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thy enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirsts, give him drink. For in so doing, thou shalt keep coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. Last week, when I looked at that verse, I looked at two things. I looked at the reality of persecution. I'm not going to go that way again. And secondly, I looked at the response to persecution. This morning, I want to deal with the third point. The rationale for the behavior that Paul enjoins upon us in this particular passage. A certain way of thinking that you as a Christian have that enables you to say, yes, I can live like this. I can deal with this. And here's why. But before I do that this morning, for those of you who say that this kind of lifestyle is impossible, I want to give you two biblical examples of how this verse was displayed and lived out in the life of two individuals. The supreme example of blessing and not cursing the person who persecutes you and hurts you and abuses you is, of course, none other than our Lord himself. Can you imagine you've gone through all kinds of mockery and abuse? You said you're king of the Jews, so let's put a crown of thorns in your head. Ah, I hear that you put a robe up like a king. Then the fellow of his beard and said, 
But why he brings in the most ignominious death? We hear words from his mouth which says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He doesn't curse them. He blesses them. Lord, forgive them. They're ignorant of what they've done. They have a darkened understanding. They don't know who I am, why I came. What they're doing to me is out of ignorance. Forgive them. They just don't. Our Lord displays to us this, what Paul is calling upon us to do, the supreme example that Paul will lift up to us is none other than Christ himself. Christ is our example in suffering. By the way, when Peter wrote to the Christians who were suffering later, uh, he wrote these provocative words to help them bear under the suffering. This is what he said. Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. Notice what he said. He who committed no sin. In other words, the Christ that suffered was innocent. But can I say something about you and me? When we suffer, we're not innocent. I repeat, when we suffer in our inner, we are part of the problems often when we are suffering. Many times when we are being abused, we are not innocent. We have contributed to the abuse, but he was innocent. Who did no sin? Nor was any deceit found in his mouth. He was faultless in his words. Which person in here is faultless in the words that you say? Abuse often comes because we say things we shouldn't say. We want to regret we say. What I'm saying here is this. Who had no guile in his mouth? James says when a man does not offend in word, he's a perfect man. So here's a person who did no sin, did no wrong, did not use any kind of speech that would cause an offense. And then Peter goes on to say in the same passage, being reviled, he reviled not. You ever heard of verbal abuse yet? There's something called physical abuse. We all know that when the man and the wife get into fight, and the man, my hand, by the way, not only the men, my hand, the women, women, hand, and men, too. The point I'm making here is, is this he was reviled. And reviled, by the way, means to be, you, you told nasty things that offend you, that hurt you. The person that's abusing you, that's persecuting you. A lot of times it may not just be physical, but the words they say. I heard a pastor one time tell a young fellow in our church one of the most loathsome, insulting things I've ever heard in my whole life. He said, Listen, young man, if they take your braid and put it in the mouth, in the head of a lizard, you'll run right into the cat's mouth. You smoke. If you take your brain and put it in a lizard's head, you run right into the cat's mouth. That fellow, this was a pastor to a friend who was working in church. I see that fellow just walked out like this. He was totally, completely deflated, humiliated. Of course, a pastor shouldn't say things like that. But it was said. Revile! Anybody revile you yet? Say nasty things about you? Vulgar things about you? But he was, but yet he reviled not. He was able to contain himself 
without responding. Then Paul appealed to say, while he suffered, and the word suffered here, by the way, means physical suffering. While he suffered, he threatened not. A lot of times when we go through abuse and we go through suffering, we threaten, don't we? I don't leave you. I put it with you for too long. I don't leave you. We threaten. Oh, you better watch what you eat next time. Or when you're sleeping, you better keep your eyes open. <laughs> now you're surprised the things that people say sometimes. But it's natural. When you attack and people say bad things about you and they hurt your feelings, it, we, we tend to respond that way. We, we try to threaten them. If you keep up the same, believe you me, something may happen to you. you. But here is Christ reviled, suffering. Here is Christ who did no sin, who did not use any offensive uh, words, who endured the suffering. And then Paul said, uh, Peter goes on to say, but what he did, he kept entrusting himself unto God. Who judges righteously. In other words, what Christ did was this. Listen, what you're doing to me is wrong. What you're doing to me is evil. I'm pain and hurt. But you know what? I have the inner strength within me to say to God, look, I need this with you. You judge righteously, God. You deal with this situation for me. But I am not going to respond and with that. That's the biblical example that Peter writes to these believers. So when we read what Paul writes here in Romans chapter 12, the temptation for us to say that, well, how is that possible? How is that possible? And then the Bible lifts up the example of the model of Christ and said, it is possible because your Lord acted this way and he is your example to follow, to live like him. But let me give you another example. Well, before I give you that second example, let me ask a question that some of you might be asking at this point in time. Is this, the pastor, does a Christian have redress at the law courts? At any time, can a Christian have redress at the law courts? Or does a Christian not? What are you dealing with other Christians as well? Do you have redress? If you're being abused, for example, a wife is being abused. And by the way, a lot of women suffer abuse in silence. You, know? you don't have a clue. Unless you see them with a black eye or you see a, a bruise mark on them, you don't have a clue what's going on in the home. Sometimes they try to protect the children from knowing what is happening in the home. But a lot of women who suffer abuse silently. So in the case of that pastor, what do you do? When you come to learn about the situation, what do you do? The Bible here says what? Bless them that persecute you. Bless and curse not. So does that person remain there even though their life might be in danger and next day they bring out their coffin? My answer to that question is a paradoxical yes and no. Let me explain what I mean by that. If you have a situation where a person is being abused in a home, a Christian home, for example, the wife comes and says, you know what, um, a lot of people don't know this, but my husband has been beating me. And he hasn't been using his fist, he's been using his fist, but he's been using a, 
bed sheet, so he pounds me, so he don't have any marks, and et cetera, et cetera. And he takes advantage of me. I feel I'm being used, I'm being abused. What do you do in a case like that? Well, you follow the biblical model of Matthew chapter 18. The first thing you do is, okay, you have a problem, I want to request a meeting with your husband, you discuss this matter with your husband. Tell him what he's been doing, always been hurting and offending you, and this has to change. That's the first step, person to person. But what if it continues? Well, the second thing you do, you get a brother or two. The Bible says one, one or two. So that in the both of three witnesses, the person, one person, and another person. Everything may be established. So you take another believer with you to confront the abuser. And you, you listen to both sides. You realize that this person is in wrong. And you say, listen, this cannot continue to stop this. The person will know, who do you think you are? You're coming to my house? I'll keep you inside my house here. Yeah? I've had a deacon do that to me, by the way. Yeah, I've had a deacon like that. I beat you! Had a, because I confronted him over after him around. He was having his wife let me know he was having an affair with a woman. I became yeah. a detective, found out what the situation was, and I confronted him. He said, man, I would beat you and kick you this place so fast. I would never forget, when I left that man's home, I was crying. I was driving, crying. I didn't, want, I didn't want to go home. I couldn't believe the way he treated me. And all I was trying to do was say the marriage, just say everything. But the words were so harsh, the language he gave me was so terrible that I just wept and wept. I tried, but I didn't go home until I stopped praying. So he says, it's none of our business. So you personal, you brought another person. So what do you do next? You bring them to the church. You let the church hear the whole, he comes and she comes if they want to, or the church goes to the home. Listen to what is happening. And the church says, you're wrong in what you're doing. But I couldn't care less about the church. The Bible says, no, wait a minute, you treat another heathen and an infidel and a publican. Now you take him to court. He's no longer treated as a believer. Now you take him to court. He doesn't listen to you. He doesn't listen to the person you bring. He doesn't listen to the church. He's not an infidel and an unbeliever. You take it to court and you get redress at court. Listen, there are biblical solutions to our problems. We just follow the biblical pattern in these matters. Same thing with separation, if I don't want to get on that topic. At time when a wife would be advised, or a husband advised to separate from each other. He's continuously Practicing infidelity. Chasing women all the time. He's married. He's endangering her life. Every disease, every woman he's ever slept with, he has and he will give it to his wife. So you have to decide which is, which. you've got to be concerned about the wife's welfare and the children's welfare because that money is gone. And he is gone to where the children left. So there are times when you have to say, listen, you guys need to separate. He needs counseling. He needs to change his infidelity. If he doesn't change his infidelity, you can live apart. Separately. That is biblical as well. Does that surprise you? Some people give the impression that, uh, uh, 
wife is there in the house, doesn't matter what the rascal is doing up there all the time, and she will just bear all this burden. Listen, that might have been true when I was a boy at 18 years old. There were only two diseases we used to know about, gonorrhea and syphilis. And they were treatable. Now there are 24 different STDs. Some of them cannot be treated. Five of them are very, very dangerous to take your life. Change. I'm just saying that not knowing the congregation, but making aware there are biblical approaches to dealing with these matters. We want change in the person. We want to save marriages. But we don't save a marriage at the death or the expense of the other person. The legal sanctions that can be sought if the biblical procedures followed and not obeyed, then you go to legal sanctions. Okay. Does that make sense, by the way? Does that help you, by the way? Can you go ball your head and say, yeah, yeah, yeah? You don't want to hear that, man, right? Yeah, the men don't want to hear that. Women don't might hear that, but the men know we don't want to hear that. They just think they can do anything they want. And she got a grand beard because they're married. You know what destroy marriage? Infidelity. The moment you commit infidelity, your wife has a legal, biblical right to divorce you if she wants to. Not as she should, but she can, biblically, and remarry too. But you can't remarry because you've not had a right for divorce. I'm helping you women because you've been beaten and battered and abused and misused for so long that you've just been told that because you're Christian, you just have to stay in that situation and just bear it in the balance of your life. I'm going to tell you that's not true. The Bible says you're called to peace. To peace. Romans, Romans, and Corinthians chapter 7, dealing with marriage. We are called to peace. If you don't say a man wants to go, let him go. You're not bound in a situation because we are called to peace. That's what the home should be. Well, let me use the second example for just a moment. Um, this has to do with the example of um, Stephen. You remember in Acts chapter 7, Stephen becomes the first Christian martyr because Stephen begins to preach to Israel and he uses the word against Israel. He said, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised. You have resisted the Holy Spirit that your fathers and forefathers have done and he retraced the whole history of Israel's hardness from the very beginning on through the wilderness, on through, he said, even to this day, you're still stiff-necked. You always resist the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit brought so much conviction in the crowd. Guess what they do? They didn't bow their knees and say you were wrong. They took up stones. And they stoned him. And while he is buried under those stones, and his life is just going out of his body, we hear him say, Lord! Lord! Put not this to their charge. charge. Now you may say you can't follow the example of Jesus. But Stephen, ah, he was not a God man, he was just an ordinary man. But the same power in Christ was the same power in Stephen. And the same power that allowed Christ to say what he did is the same power that allowed Stephen to say what he did. And the same power that allows us to do what this word said. Those are the two classic examples of the application of this verse and the reality that this is possible 
for us as Christians. Now that brings me to the thing I want to discuss with you this morning. What I call the rationale for the kind of behavior that uh, reaction that the Bible calls for here. Now remember, I keep saying this as I'm dealing with these 25 injunctions and these 25 admonitions that we find here in uh, Romans chapter number 12. I keep saying to you, and I want to remind you, that before Paul gave you these 25 injunctions, he has prepared you for what makes these injunctions possible by what he says in the two beginning verses of this chapter. There are three things that make all of these injunctions possible in your life. Number one, the mercies of God. Once you understand the mercy of God towards you, now you are inclined to show mercy to other people. So once you grasp these great mercy that Paul talks about from chapter number 1 to chapter number 11, the mercies of God, then once you grasp that, you find it possible to be merciful to other people. If you don't understand God's mercy, you find it difficult to be merciful to other people. It becomes difficult. That's the first thing. I beseech you therefore by the mercies of God. Number two, you must submit and surrender yourself to him. That you present your body as a living sacrifice. In the Old Testament, when you took a sacrifice, you put it on the altar. The altar burned it up completely to God. It was a, a burnt offering. Everything went to God. Paul is saying, take yourself, put you on the altar, but you don't need a burnt offering. We need a living offering. Now you live for God. If you have not understood God's mercy, you've never surrendered your life to Christ. These verses are impossible. These injunctions are impossible. And then the third thing Paul says, you need your mind transformed by the renewing of your mind. You need a transformed mind, a different way of thinking. Those are the three prerequisites that makes these 25 injunctions possible. Without these three prerequisites, these things are impossible to achieve. So we must grasp the mercies of God. We must surrender our lives to Christ. We must have our minds transformed by being renewed. If those three things are not true of you, you'll find these very words of Paul in chapter 12, verse 14 of Henson. You are saying under your nose, nothing happens to you. That's impossible. That's impossible. Something is wrong with that verse. I can't live like that. I don't want to live like that. But once you understand God's mercy, you surrender your life to the Lord. And thirdly, your mind is renewed. You say to yourself, this might be difficult to do, but it's not impossible. With God, all things are possible. So therefore, now I apply this to my life. That's how a Christian thinks. So that brings me now to the fact that we must have a change of thinking. We must, in other words, the rationale for compliance to this verse is a result of the way we think. Christians think in a distinct way from the unsafe person. You know why? It is so because when a person becomes saved in Christ, he becomes a what? A new creation. 
a new, you are a new person born to your genuine. He said, I repeat, you are a new person. The pastor, I hear you, but I'm not a new person. But if you're not a new person, you're not saved. I repeat, if you were, if you're the same person you were 20 years ago, you're not saved. You must have changed. And I don't want to know why the church comforts people by telling them they're saved when they're not saved. If your life hasn't changed, face the reality you're not a Christian. You might have made a little prayer, you might have said something, but you're not changed. If you're not changed, you're not saved. Every man in Christ is a new creation. So what happens when you become a new creation? All things are passing away. Behold, all things are becoming new. And what that really means is that your own way of thinking begins to change. And you begin to see things differently. And that's what I want to help you to understand. That is the rationale for adopting this kind of a lifestyle and this kind of reaction can only come about as a result of our changed way of thinking. Let me now deal with how we begin to think as Christians when we deal with people persecutors. The first thing that happens is that when we begin to deal with this matter, we begin to remind ourselves of how God responded to us and how God reacted to us. That's the first thing. If you don't begin to think that way, you'll find it difficult to deal with people who are persecuting you. How did God respond to you? How did God react to you when you were in your life of rebellion? When you come care less about God, when you offended God's word and you said many things against God, as a matter of fact, they cussed words that you said and they put them in a dictionary or a full dictionary. How did God respond to you? How did God react to you when you were doing things that you know were wrong? When you were mistreating other people, mistreating your parents, mistreating your teachers, as a matter of fact, mistreating your friends. How did God, did God damn you? Did God curse you? So you begin to look at yourself and you know, I, I used to persecute people. I used to mistreat people. I used to abuse people. But while I was doing that, what was God's reaction to me? You know what that reaction was? That in spite of who I was, God loved me. God cared for me. And God sent his son to die for me. For God so loved the world that he gave his warning because of the whosoever believe should not but have everlasting. That's how we responded. Caringly, compassionately, restrainingly, with your best interest at heart. Now the moment you begin to think of how God responded and reacted to you in your unsafe condition, you need to remind yourself of how the Bible describes you before you were a Christian. Let me give you the words of the Bible, how the Bible describes you before you were a Christian. The Bible said in, in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, that you were the enemy of God. Did you hear that? Before we were saved, we were the enemies of God. Anybody ever give you a trap yet? Before you were saved, 
and you just don't get a ticket with a spoon on the person while you just drop it. I wish you'd give me $10 for this track. What is God going to do for help? How's going to help me? You remember those words? That's you. Anybody invite you to church? I ain't going to drink a drink. I go to party, man. I have a good fun. Don't go it. No time for God, no time for church. That was you. You were the enemy of God. Did you know it was wrong to commit fornication? Of course you knew that. It's written in your heart, the law. But yet you pursued that. Did you know adultery was wrong? Of course, but yet you committed adultery. Did you know the land was wrong? But yet you lied your way out of every situation. That's who you were. The enemy of God. The Bible also said that you were alienated. From the life of God. What I mean that you are separate. You are stranger to God. You didn't want the life that God offers. You want to live your own life. In other words, you are self-made, autonomous, self-independent person. You just want to do your thing. You don't want anybody to tell you what to do. Not even God tell you what to do. That was you. Or maybe that is you right now. Enemies. Alien from God. And then the Bible says, we were children of disobedience. When the Bible use the word children, you know what I mean? It means disobedience was your mother. You're a child of disobedience. You are naturally a disobedient person. That's how God describes us before we were Christians. But it was one of the most damning verses in the Bible. That uh, gives you a terrible description of ourselves before we were saved. In Titus chapter 3, verse 4. He tells us seven things about ourselves before we were saved. Listen to this verse. He said, We are we ourselves were sometimes foolish, morons. You ever look back at your life and never ask yourself, how many morons did I have done that? I mean, I cannot believe I was so foolish. You ever did that? We all have done that. How do you want to believe his words? How do I believe that? How do I get him to treat me like this? I knew better. Yeah, we were foolish. Before we were saved. Because our minds were not informed with scripture. We want to do our own thing with the depraved heart. It's evil and desperately wicked, the Bible says. He said that we were disobedient. We were deceived. He says. We serve divers lust and pleasure before we were saved. That word divers means a multitude of different forms of lust and desires and pleasure we went after. Can I say this? I sometimes hear older people get up and give testimonies. Sometimes they get up and talk about the young people this, the young people that. Some of them I know before they got saved. Let me tell you, real devils in them. Oh, but they forgot what they used to be. So they tear the young people right. Left. And everything they tear the young people, I'm saying, but you did that. That's all you were. You did that. You did that. Because without Jesus Christ, the thing that controls every man outside of Jesus Christ is pleasures and desires. That's what controls. That's why a young lady will be at home in the house. Daddy's working. She has food at the table. She has clothing. She has shelter. 
who gives her education. She does everything. And she doesn't even know how happy she is. Some foolish guy comes by and tells her, uh, I will do this for you and then we'll be able to free you. And he's able to take her out of her mother's house, get her pregnant though. Get her pregnant. And then, it doesn't last very long after the pregnancy happens. Within a few months, he says, okay, bye bye. Bye bye. Now that same girl that had shelter and food and clothing and education, now she brings trouble in the home. And for the next 20 years of that mother's life, that child has to be taken care of because the rascal not going to provide for the church. The mother now has to provide for the children. It adds a burden to the parents. I ask myself, why would a person do that? You know why? Lust. Desires. Passion. Young people, let me warn you that five minutes of pleasure can give you 20 years of misery. Think about that before you go down the wrong track and find yourself. And then, by the way, that same girl now, for the next 20 to 25 years of life, every decision she makes, it relates to that child. Every single decision. She's tied down. But she was free when she was at home. She got run here and done this and enjoy it. Now that child, she's tied down. Then she looked back up and said to herself, how was I so foolish? You know why you're foolish? Your desires. Your passions. And that's what Titus uh, says. Foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving back with lust and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. That is the description of the man outside of Jesus Christ before he was saved. The point of it is, there was nothing in us to commend us to God when we were unsaved. But yet God in his mercy and his grace reached out to us. Showed love and care and compassion. Sent his son to die for us. And then he brings us into his own family and makes us children. Now we find it so hard to forgive for the part of the person who was mistreating us. We've had so much mercy, so much grace. Superabundant grace. If people only know how God has been merciful to us, and then this one thing, we find it hard now to bless this person that's persecuting us. I'm saying to you, it's only when you begin to have this kind of a rationale, when you begin to think about God dealt with you in grace and in mercy, that you become capable now of dealing with this person who offended you in grace and mercy. But without that, my change. It's become impossible. That's why we Christians have a new way of thinking. So I'm too much material now to stop here. I have to stop here. And let me use another, let me use another simple example. You know what Paul told the Corinthians? These words. Now we know man, we know no man after the flesh. I repeat, now we know no man after. You know what Paul is saying there? We no longer have the fleshy view of humankind. We don't look at man in the natural way the natural man looks. 
we look at people differently. But when it comes to people who are mistreating us, we must understand that in most cases, these people are not Christian, they're unregenerate. That's how we need to see them. And we need to separate the person who is doing the thing and the action himself. The action is wrong, the abuse is wrong. But behind the action is the man. And you ask yourself, oh, why is he doing this? I have done this person nothing wrong. I've been kind to this person. There's nothing that I'm worthy of this kind of treatment. Why are they acting this way? Now we know man, no man after the fact. Then we begin to understand. We must distinguish between the action of this man and the perpetrator himself. We begin to look upon him and understand he's an unregenerate man. He's an unsaved man. He doesn't know Christ as Savior. So you know what happened? We begin to feel sorry for him. Because for the first time, we begin to look at him differently. We never looked at him that way. We never separated the man's sin from the man himself. But now we have the Christian mind. We begin to realize, you know, his actions are wrong. Look, why is he doing what he's doing? He's doing what he's doing because he's an unsaved, unregenerate person. That's his thing. Now you not only feel sorry for him, but you know what you do? You begin to say, Lord, give me mercy for me. You bless me and bless me. It may be hard to me, but through these tears, God, I'm saying to you, I want you to bless that man. I know what he's doing is hurting me. I know what they're doing is offending me. But you know what? Through my tears, God, bless him. I will not curse him, God, bless him. Bless him, bless him. Save him, God, the same way you saved me. Then you start praying for him. And he gets saved. Then he be changed because you used to be the same way. But your eyes have been opened. And now your eyes, you see the world differently. The unsaved man is in the snare of Satan. He is a pawn of the enemy. And sometimes, by the way, he can't help himself. That's his nature. His nature needs to change. But it did not change except you ask God because you cannot change him. You can complain all you want to. God has to change him, not you. So now you begin to pray, God bless him. Oh God, don't curse him. Don't bring him. Save him for your mercy's sake. The only way we can do that is we have this rationale behind it that we don't see men as a natural man and an others. We see them differently. Completely. We see God's mercy towards us. And by the way, has anybody ever done anything to you worse than you've done to God? How many times you went to God and said, you'll never do that again? Never, never, Lord, never. I swear to you, I vow to you never again. Two weeks back to the same old thing, back to God again. But what does he tell you? Don't come to me. Don't come to me. No, he says, if your brother offend you, and your brother come back and does it 70 times, you've got to forgive your brother. So when you come to God 70 times, guess what? He has to practice what he tells you to do. So he forgives you, and he forgives you, and he forgives you. You forgot that. You forgot God's mercy towards you. And then don't ever forget this. The unsaved man cannot act like a Christian. So if you're a married woman who's a Christian, you've got an unsaved husband, he can't be a Christian. He can't act like a Christian, talk like a behave like a Christian. He'll do it for a while, but he keeps going back to the same old way. See it that way. Start 
praying for him. Did you see living him? Let us stop there. I hope that it's somehow we um, kind of helpful to you in dealing with this matter because I know one thing. This is one of the most difficult verses to put into practice. Bless them that persecute you. Bless the personal. And when we hear those words, automatically we say, Look, that, 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 that's a song. That, that, that's going against my very brain. But when you see it demonstrated by Christ and demonstrated by Stephen, and then the understanding of this new way of thinking, this new view in other people, God's mercies, and the unsaved person. Then you begin to say, yes, I know it was possible for me to do that. Once I can see the mercy of God, and I can see this person's entrapped in a bondage to sin, self, and Satan. Then you begin to feel sorry and sympathetic and grateful. That's the word of prayer before Father, thank you so much for those who sat and listened. Trust that we've not buried into the point of exhaustion. And we pray that what we've said will sink deep within your souls. And when the occasion comes that they have to deal with this kind of a situation, we pray that we will go into the files of their memory and take up this verse and this, these thoughts. And this will help them to be able to give the kind of life that God wants them to be able to respond in the way that God wants them to respond. Lord, we are not ordinary people. We are ordinary people who serve a supernatural God, who have had a supernatural change in our lives. God expects a higher standard for us than for the man who does not know Christ. But we need the resources to do what you want us to do. Part of that resource is a transformed mind. And looking at men and women differently, seeing them from your perspective. Not judging people by culture or race, by history and by geography, but judging men by the fact that they are lost and deceived and have a simple heart. Whether they be pink, blue, black, or green, they all are the same. Desperately wicked, their heart is. Give us this perspective and help us to start looking at the world that we live in and the people in the world from this biblical perspective. But above all, May your mercy and your grace be always the umbrella that enables us as your people to shield people from wrath and anger because we've experienced such great from you. Lord, if anyone here this morning is not saved, I pray that you would have said something in the sermon that would provoke them to seriously ponder the eternal condition before God. Oh Lord, may they hear your word, may they respond to your word, may the price of Calvary become the price of death, and may they experience this transforming Bless your people, bless your word, bless this church, bless those who are descendants. Help us to be less of ourselves and more like you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Be sure you join us next time here on Sermons of Grace. As Pastor Murphy shows us that a Christian is to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. If you'd like to contact Pastor David Murphy or Grace Baptist Church, please call 268-462-4230 or visit during one of their service times. Sunday school is at 9 a.m., Sunday morning at 10 a.m., 
Sunday evening at 7 p.m., or Thursday evenings at 7 p.m. Grace Baptist Church is located on Rowan Henry Street in Gambles Terrace, Antigua.